you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Before we get started, let me get in another plug right here off the top for our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, and you would like to see the podcast keep going strong, please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash Island. You can sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And patrons, we need more of you involved. And the new chat stuff is really cool. They put on a new like little chat. Um, uh, I, although I know it's only in the app, the new chat uh, uh, program that they have. It is only in the app. They're promising me it's going to be on their desktop version as well. But anyway, it's there in the app and it's really cool chat is so much fun uh so come and join us let me send my warm welcome and heartfelt thanks to our new patron craig craig welcome to the digging oak island family thank you so much for your support again folks go to patreon.com slash digging oak island to sign up and support the podcast and remember it's only five bucks a month and you can cancel anytime also if you prefer not to do the monthly thing you know i get that you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via venmo i only say this because people ask um it's it's under the username at dave mcbride music that's my musician's little venmo there for virtual tips and stuff so uh, if you want to make a donation that way you're welcome to do so and thanks to everybody who has as always let's start today's podcast with emails and messages from you the listeners and let's start off with a follow-up message of some kind, follow-up email from our listener, George, uh, who last week talked about a possible like sleight of hand from Gary Drayton in one of the scenes where he found the musket ball that was pulled out of Lot 5 last week. This week, George writes, Hi, Dave. The episode where Gary is going through the spoils, I believe, of the circular feature, is where he found the musket ball. What caught my attention is after he gets a hit, he takes out his pinpointer, metal detector, and picks up a handful of dirt. And he runs his handheld detector through his hand and, of course, the detector going off. But he then dumps the dirt on the ground. I didn't see him pull the musket ball out of the handful of dirt. He seems to already have had it in the other hand and rolls it into the hand he just dumped from the dirt. It just seemed a little suspicious. Maybe I'm being petty. I hope them, I hope they find the mother load soon. I hope this is a little bit. Uh, I hope this is a little more information. Thanks, George, because I asked George to kind of tell me what he thought there. George, I don't think it's petty at all for you to ask a question like that or to even think that way. As I say at the top of every podcast, our goal here is um, to find the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. That's what we're here for, right? Um, and so we can't let possibly suspicious stuff just go by without at least a question or two. And I think anybody would be okay with that. You know, um, my guess is what we're actually seeing here though, is a combination of one bad editing and also reshooting. I mean, meaning you notice these guys never seem to like break out laughing at each other. <laughs> they never seem to trip over a stick when they're walking through all this woods. They never drop anything as they're walking around. That's because there are lots and lots of reshoots done on this show. So my guess is Gary, Gary probably picked out that musket ball from the dirt three or four times, if not more, 
before the director was happy with the take. And then it goes to the editor and the editor doesn't edit it the same way the director had it. It happens all the time. Hope that makes sense. Folks, we have said many, many times before, reality television is not reality by any means. It might not be scripted, but it is certainly manipulated, if that's the correct word even, to make for better television. George, I have absolutely no idea if that is the case with what you caught here, but my guess is Gary found that musket ball right where he says he did, but the scene we got to see are, uh, you know, reshoots edited together to make this sometimes very confusing jumble that we get to see and uh, have to examine closely, you know? I hope that helps. Let's go now to an email from Lee who writes, Good afternoon, Dave. Uh, Hope you and the family are well. We are. Hope you and yours as well, Lee. Here in sunny Scotland, we are slightly behind the U.S. broadcast, but a few episodes in, and I'm excited for the show and for your podcast to return. Just a quick observation. I have is there seems to be a new energy, a feel, a style to the show on first impressions. The outlook of the team seems so positive and more time being given to key areas of interest for me, such as the science, history, and archaeology, mainly Laird being given more screen time and a chance to pass his opinion and expertise. Something that is long overdue, in my opinion, from the last few seasons. Hope this continues for sure. All the best. Keep up the good work. Love the podcast, Lee. Thank you so much, Lee. I do think there is a bit more energy in this season. Um, And at least for me, that energy comes from just the massive investment that these guys have made here, which really is starting to become obvious for everyone this season, right? I've said this for a long, long time, but it bears repeating here. The argument that this show has somehow not been good for the long-term goal of solving the mystery, an argument made by many a critic of the show, mind you, that I read all the time, that argument in my mind is just plain nonsense. These guys have taken the money this show has made and invested a lot of it back into the hunt. So the result of the show really has been the most well-funded and technologically advanced Oak Island search in the 225-plus year history of the mystery. Even if you adjust for inflation, they have spent more money than anyone else before them, even adjusted for inflation, right? That's just the fact of the matter, really. And I think those investments are what is behind this energy we're seeing. The metallurgy lab we now have at the Interpretive Center. This team of archaeologists that seems to be on site all summer long. An endless amount of drilling being done without any regard for budget restrictions. And this incredibly expensive garden shaft project. No one has even come close to the type of investment the Laginas and the History Channel have made here. So much of it this season too, you know. And so I think that may be part of what you're seeing. Great stuff, Lee. Let's finish up today's listener portion of the show with an amazing email from our friend Gary from the Pittsburgh Pirates Fan Forum Podcast. Check it out, Buckos fans. Best podcast you'll find anywhere. Gary writes, Hi, Dave. Something that's been bothering me in general, so I decided to try to understand it better, and that's carbon dating for wood submerged in water. It seems to me... A large swath of the timeline being established for us as we watch the show has been based on the science and it... And I took it at face value until I came across this. And it's a quote from a paper that he found here. It says, the freshwater reservoir effect can result in anonymously, oh, yes, anomalously, that's the word I'm looking for, old radiocarbon ages of samples from lakes and rivers. This includes the bones of people whose whose subsistence was based on freshwater fish and pottery in which fish was cooked. 
Water rich in dissolved ancient calcium carbonates, commonly known as hard water, is the most common reason for freshwater reservoir effect. It is therefore also called hard water effect. Although it has been known for more than 60 years, it is still less well recognized by archaeologists than the marine reservoir effect. And again, it's from a paper he found on a site called Heritage Science Journal. Uh, He continues, pottery was specifically mentioned throughout the piece, and things I never even considered as factors started flooding into my mind. Food left on old pottery, hard water. Thought you'd find it interesting. So much of the timeline we're working with is based on these numbers being accurate. So at the very least, I thought maybe you could ask Laird next time you have the opportunity if they've come up with some formula to offset and calculate this, or maybe they just consider this junk science. Seems to be getting this timeline as dialed in as possible would go a long way toward resolving this thing. Love you, brother. Have a happy Christmas. If I don't talk to you again, uh, unless you want to be on your Christmas special episode of the Pirates Fan Forum, (laughs) Gary, Gary, always great to hear from you, my man. Uh, And, you know, uh, I will anytime be happy to join you on that podcast. You know, I love to talk about the Bucks. Anyway, um, but I got to say, Gary, you're kind of dashing dreams a little bit here. I mean, you really have me scratching my head now. Listen. We have a lot of verse of folks versed in stuff like this who listen, so I'm going to do my best to post this article on our Facebook page for you guys to examine. The article, or I really I should say the paper, right, also discusses something called the marine reservoir effect, which is basically the same concept Gary's talking about here, but with seawater affecting the carbon dating. The first thing I think of is the swamp and the dates from what, like the 12th century or so, right? Could this be the reason why those dates are so old? It certainly seems that way to me now. Now, listen, I'm by no means an expert, right, man? I I reached out to to geologist Gordon Fader. Hopefully he can help me. And um, this is also by no, not exactly his field of expertise by any means, but I'm sure he has a much learned opinion on me. So I did that, and here is how he responded to your email. He wrote, hi, Dave. Although I use dating techniques, I'm not an expert in the process and limitations of the technique. Lots of the research has and is being conducted on the problems with carbon dating. Lately, I've been using AMS Accelerator Mass Spectrometer for dating small samples and tiny seashells and getting great results that all line up. Oak Island is no stranger to dating problems. The first issues arose with the coconut fiber that seemed to be giving very old dates, especially when they occurred on and within English structures of the 18th century. It would have been better if a dating lab who specialized in these matters commented on the wide variety of dates. One has to remember that fires, insect infestations, groundwater, and seawater have permeated many of the items that could give rise to older or inaccurate dates. Our evidence shows that furnaces, fires, smelting, and chemical processes were all used by the British, and this would also complicate dating. Now, regarding the pottery, I suspect that food remains would be long gone, and if they were fired, probably would have not had would not have another influence on their age. A nice, serious scientific paper could be written on all the Oak Island dating issues, but it must take into consideration all the other processes associated with the island that could distort the dates. Probably more important is the context for artifacts and the stratigraphy of the sediments. Gordon is way beyond my brain capacity. The sediments for a better assessment. As it stands, the dates for the island are quite a scatter. Hope this helps. Cheers, Gordon. 
And I got to say, I was correct. He has a much more educated answer than I could possibly give you, Gary. Uh, I'm going to keep searching, though, for some more help on this. Um, I, too, have been wondering for years now how these dates could be so all over the place. And perhaps this could finally get us towards the answer on this one. You, in the old NASA, Gary, the, the old days of NASA, Gary, they used to call you a steely-eyed missile man. That's for somebody who found something like this. I and mean, this is a great pull. Folks, don't forget Gordon's book, Oak Island Mystery Solved, the final chapter. Um, it offers up an incredibly well-researched theory on what happened on Oak Island. And it's one that does not lead to a treasure, but does indeed point to clandestine government dealings and goings-on on Oak Island. Check it out. And again, for those of you pirate fans out there, Gary's podcast, Pittsburgh Pirates Fan Forum, the best podcast you're going to find about it. It's better than you can get out of radio stations or anything like that. Uh, and Gary, again, happy to talk pirate baseball whenever you like. And I, I know I've been saying this for some time, but we got to get you on this podcast soon, too. It's always great to hear from you. Hopefully we can meet up in January for that fan fest. Okay, folks, that's all for the emails today. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. It is time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 6 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Grand Opening. Now, guys, this is going to be kind of a shorter podcast. Um... Because there really isn't much to discuss in this episode. We get this a lot sort of through the mid-season of the, of the show. I still love watching and talking about it, and this was really a good episode. But just not much more um, needs to be discussed about it. Nothing needs to be sort of expanded on at all, if that makes any sense. But let's get into it. We can start over at Lot 5. We begin with Laird Niven and Jamie Kuba in the Interpretive Center to present the result of the magnetometer scan we saw Jamie conducting at the end of last week's episode. He's presenting these results to Craig Tester and to Rick Lagina. Now, remember, this scan was conducted over by what they are calling the circular feature, and apparently St. Mary's University, University did the data analysis for them. It's pretty cool that the local universities are, are still willing and still um, happy to get involved in this kind of stuff. The analysis that they have here suggests there is a lot more to this feature than just the circular bit that we're seeing. And I have to say that's kind of really good news to me. The concern with this feature that I had over the last couple of weeks was that, um, you know, what we were seeing was obviously manipulated in some way by the former landowner, Robert Young, from the pictures that we were shown. But if there is much more to it underground than what we saw in those photos from the Young family, then perhaps we're getting... Um, at stuff that Young never actually even saw or knew of himself. And so that can really tell us what this is. Jamie and Laird seem to be suggesting here that whatever it is they're looking at, it's uh, indicating some sort of permanent inhabitants rather than just sort of a smaller circular foundation for a little shed or something like that, if you know what I mean. Now, during this, Elizabeth on the Patreon discussion commented, I was wondering if it could be a foundation. And now it does seem that way. Again, this is a fascinating project. It seems to be getting bigger and bigger and possibly more fascinating. Before, some little thing like this, I didn't, I didn't know what it really could be. But if this is an undocumented home over here, home of what? You know, that's what I'd be, it's, and, and I don't think this is anything, might not have anything to do with the treasure, right? But it's just a fascinating little bit of history. So the next thing we see over at Lot 5 is Jack Begley at the circular feature helping out the archaeologists with his with the excavation. Now, Jack is sifting through buckets of dirt as the archaeologists are digging away, and he finds what looks like an old nail and later one uh, 
One of the others pulls out a hollow metal object that looks like the handle of an old tool or something. So later on in the Interpretive Center, they give these objects over to Emma Culligan and to Laird Niven to have a look. They first look at this hollow object, which we can see through the CT scanner, also has two holes in it. <laughs> kind of sort of a decorative end. It has these two little holes in it. The other end, you can obviously see you would put a stick or something in it, right? It was for the top of some sort of pole tool. I don't really get an idea from the archaeologists in this uh, scene here as to what they think this could be. But we do hear Emma Culligan tell us that the chemical analysis once again matches with the William Phipps artifacts. And just as I started to get excited about this, Steve on the Patreon, um, another one, destroying my dreams here, just like Gary. And he wrote, <laughs> quote, yes, but could these items metallurgically match items belonging to thousands of people who were not William Phipps? And that got me thinking about this some more. If I'm correct, the items that they're comparing these finds on Oak Island to were found at the William Phipps childhood home, his birth site. This is where he was born and he lived until the very early 20s in what's now Woolwich, Maine. Or actually now, I think, along the Damariscotta River. Are we saying that he made these items or his father or something like that? Or are we saying that he purchased them from a local blacksmith and that's how we get these chemical connections? And also, could these artifacts have been made before he was even born? I mean... His family lived there, I would imagine, years before baby Billy became came bouncing into their lives, right? So do we know these artifacts were even really his? Whose were they? What are the artifacts? Thanks to Steve, I now have a lot of questions and doubt and would really love the show to give us some more on these items and, uh, and what this could all mean, right? Now, before we finish up with Lot 5, uh, we have to back up a bit and discuss a scene where Doug Kroll... And Laird Niven take uh, an in a fine discussed last week to a weapons expert named Jeff Parker in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. This is that ramrod guide, if you recall, a small hollow piece of metal at first looked like a gun casing or something. But then you noticed it had like a fin on the top of it. This Mr. Parker confirms that it is indeed ramrod guide. He explains a bit about how, about what it actually means and what it was used for and all that kind of stuff. And he says it comes from a rifle dating anywhere from the 1600s to the late 1700s. Interesting. But unless we can f somehow connect this to something concrete, it really doesn't seem to be all that unusual a find to me. All right, let's head over now to the Money Pit area. Uh, most of the episode takes place over at Borehole L14, uh, which heads down into Aladdin's Cave, as they're calling it. There is one scene where we see Charles Barkhouse first head over to the garden shaft to get a debrief on what the plans are. And so let's mention that quickly before we get to L14, because they mention again here how the Dumas Company is working to extend the shaft down to a depth of 95 feet. And uh, this is where the shaft would end. And they keep saying that they're going to be able to look at a possible tunnel down at this area of 95 feet. But the question I have is, isn't the tunnel at 105 feet? Hmm. It's supposed to be running underneath at a 10 feet further down than that. 
I only assume that there are plans to get to this target in Dumas' work, but we're just not hearing that yet, so a little concerned. But anyway, let's go over now to this L14 hole, where the opening scene, we see the team joined by Blaine Carr. He is a sonar expert coming to the island to perform a scan of what they call Aladdin's Cave. Again, listen to last week's podcast about that if you didn't already and learn more about it. But before they um, do put the sonar down into the hole and into the cave, they send a camera down first to get a look around. Not much here on those images. Lots of rocks, jagged edges, nothing that appears to be anything man-made or unnatural. I mean, the guys are kind of pointing out stuff, but it looks all pretty natural to me, if I'm honest. Later on in the episode, we see the sonar finally going down into borehole L14. Now, before we see any of this, we get this absolutely hilarious line from the narration, which says, quote, after obtaining video one day ago of possible man-made workings, end quote. I mean... Did they think we only just tuned in now at this scene and didn't see the grainy video that showed nothing just 10 minutes earlier? Hilarious how they do that sometimes. And that's a frustrating thing for a lot of for a lot of viewers and a lot of critics, right? Anyway, I digress. The sonar thing goes down and we find that we have to let it kind of run overnight, scan overnight before we can get any real results. So at the end of the episode, we get to a war room meeting with the guys and this Mr. Carr to get these sonar results. It's hard to really get an idea of what these results show from the little we got to see in the scene, but Carr suggests that the cave has an entrance and an exit, hence the pun grand opening. And for some reason, everybody gets all excited about that. Now, I just am not really sure why they're so excited. There's an entrance and an exit? Do those entrances and exits look man-made? Doesn't seem so. Because you can rest assured that if they did look man-made, that would be all they talked about here, and for good reason. Of course there's an entrance and an exit. We already know that water flows all throughout the underground of this area. Remember Marty's Canadian loony or toonie or the coin he had that traveled around underground? Of course we know this already. So Ernest on the Patreon remarked, that cavern looks more natural than 10X. And you could be right about that, Ernest, because it seems Blair Blaine Carr agrees when he remarked that it shows, quote, potential of a man-made ingress into a natural cavern. Hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, we can get a better idea of why he thinks there is a possible man-made ingress, because nothing in here seems to show me this. But again, I'm just the guy looking at a a quick picture on TV. Who knows? After seeing this, uh, I'm really close to crossing Aladdin's cave off the list, right? Just seems like a natural thing they came across. Okay, since this is turning out to be a very short podcast, I thought before we go, I would take a look, um, take some time to answer some more of the patrons' comments about this week's episode. So let's do that quickly here because there's a lot of neat insight for some of this. Uh, Ernest, who we mentioned before, said... Um, Maybe Oak Island was just a major covert military stronghold, and over time, a lot of items got washed into all the caverns and tunnels from the shoreline like the parchment paper. Uh, Ernest, there are two things your comment made me think of. One, uh, they could have also been blown around and dropped all over the island, right? There's a lot of storms, a lot of wind. You're in the North Atlantic. These things happen. And two... I just want to mention again the book Oak Island Mystery Solved the Final Chapter by Joy Steele and Gordon Fader. With the way you're thinking here about what we're seeing, Ernest, I think their theory that they present in their book might be pretty appealing to you. 
Also on the patron, Steve wrote, quote, I foresee Tony Sampson suiting up and going underground this season. Steve, I guess that's possible, but I do think that kind of diving is a very sort of specialist diving and only for certain kind of certified divers who've done certain training. Remember, he was not the guy who dove down 200 and something feet into 10X. That was a guy named John Chatterton. And he was also the guy who went down there and confirmed that all of those things Dan Blankenship thought were man-made, including what was reportedly a chest or a box, turned out to be nothing really but rocks. So now I'm just guessing here, but I, I would think this would not be Tony's area, or they would have used him in the past, right? And honestly, such a dive is incredibly dangerous. And have we really seen anything here in Aladdin's cave that would warrant such a risk to a person? At this point, I got to tell you, I would say no. And finally, Claude commented, could it be an episode without a Templar theory? Yes, Claude. And it was pretty refreshing, wasn't it? And with that in mind, I also want to mention this one from Steve, who said, seems like there ought to be an actual William Phipps expert out there somewhere to opine on this, one that isn't an Oak Island researcher. Steve, that's a good idea. I'm going to start looking into that. Right, I told you it's going to be a short episode, so that's it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show's worth five bucks a month, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you would prefer, you can also make a one-time donation via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help the podcast out in another way, uh, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to everyone who's done that. Really appreciate it. You can also follow the show on Facebook. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or, or a direct message on Facebook, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your answer read aloud, uh, just make a note of that for me. Well, folks, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.